Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me for the journey through space and time. I will, as I try to do, always remember to say thanks to all of the people who are supporting this podcast series, having signed up to my patreon.com site. It's the financial support from there that makes the podcast series possible, so thank you. If you're not a member and you'd like to become a member, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, part with the cash. Uh, It's cheaper to join for a whole year, but you can join month by month. And you get access to the podcast and a question and answers and competitions and you get access to one another join a community of like-minded historically curious types so sign up and join the family that's enough of the advert time now to get aboard the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world recorder microphone action A great gathering of powerful tribal rulers takes place at the source of the mighty river Onon. Formidable warriors and nobles bow down and subjugate themselves to their new leader. Under his command, an incredible new army is built. Ruthlessly efficient, terrifying and brutal, vast swathes of territory are conquered. The largest land empire in history is born. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we travelled with you to Jerusalem as the Crusaders swept in and a legendary chivalric hero was born. Which moment in the story of the world are we heading to now? Morning Paul. Yes, we're leaving behind one great military leader and heading east to meet another, one of the greatest ever. The speed at which this leader brought his warring clans together and fashioned an army of disciplined, well-trained warriors is breathtaking. It's the year 1206 and we're travelling to Mongolia to meet the man who would be Genghis Khan. Well, we're in Mongolia uh, with with the Mongols. And when I say Mongolia, in the context of uh, Genghis Khan, who we're going to talk about today, uh, it was a real big place. <laughs> uh, the empire that um, that Genghis Khan ended up stitching together from the Pacific on the one side to the Caspian Sea on the other was four times the size of that which was achieved by Alexander the Great and twice the size of anything achieved by any Caesar. So... It was it was an extraordinary achievement, and it was done so quickly 
you know, he, he built it up in his own adult lifetime. All of that, it's it, it just extraordinary. Genghis Khan is another of these names from history, I don't know, like Buddha or, or, or you know, Jesus Christ or Gandhi. It's one of those names that you say it and everyone's heard it. There's a, obviously a huge variation of how much people actually know about that person, but it's the name, the brand, just is immortal. Um, and I think people, you know, and he's, he's a bogeyman as well. He'll be a hero to some as an empire builder, but he's also an incredible bogeyman of unimaginable violence uh, and his treatment of women, uh, you know, he just, I mean, he's, he's beyond the pale in every way, um, but an extraordinary force of nature. An extraordinary manifestation of the power of the will of a single human being to exert a way of life and a direction over countless millions of people and he did it from the back of a horse you know you know this, this is not a world of technology this is not a world of of internet and you know round the clock surveillance by closed circuit television cameras this is done by just the power that the mention of your name carries on the wind just extraordinary but the extent to which he was able to achieve what he set out to do is you know, it's almost unprecedented. People probably think of someone like Caesar, a Caesar, or or Alexander the Great as being somehow bigger and better. But the fact is, what Genghis Khan achieved was greater than all of them. Oh, he's a horrifying figure. He's a, I mean, what what can you? The, the superlatives run out of steam before they before they reach the point of describing what he was actually like. You know, the the scale of slaughter. It's just off the charts. In terms of a moment, in terms of the love letter to the world, uh, you know these these moments that I've s stitched together here to you know to tell a what is hopefully a cohesive story. The moment is on a day in 1206 AD. We're on the banks. We're at the source actually of the Onan River, on the eastern slopes of the Kentai Mountains in northeastern Mongolia. The river, the Onan River, flows 640 miles from there to the Pacific, and it's one of the ten greatest, longest rivers in the world, which I quite like that because it's almost a metaphor for the reach of the Mongol Empire. You know, in terms of that river that flows, that reach, that massive reach on the face of the earth, well, it's quite fitting that a ceremony was conducted at the source of that river to usher in the time of Genghis Khan. Um, as I say, it's uh, it's a day, not sure of the date, but it's 1206, and all of the Mongol tribes, well, all of the, certainly all of the nobles, the headmen of the clans of the Mongols uh, have, have come together in this location for what in their terms is a general assembly. You know, it's like the annual general meeting of the Mongol clans. And attendance, I think like that was mandatory, pretty much on pain of death. But the desire to be seen at this one was uniquely pressing, even for a people who were you know, pretty used to severe discipline in the face of any breach of etiquette. If you picture like a, a clearing in woodland, huge tents have been erected. I mean, when I say tents, they're, they're held up by wooden pillars that are covered in gold. 
Wow. Okay, so it's not a camping trip. You know, the, 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 the sight of, of this, for a people that are mobile, remember, you know, the, the whole culture was based around moving on horseback, following the herds and all the rest of it, that they would create this temporary presence in the landscape it must have been quite something for them to see. It wasn't just Mongol nobles and people who, who turned out for this gathering. There were emissaries from foreign states, including a future emperor of China, had seen it in his best interest to be there. Such was the, you know, the, who is this guy? Just just what are we dealing with here? Um, there would have been a whole, like, if, if it's an annual general meeting, there would have been a whole agenda uh, for the day. But the main business was at the head of the agenda. The way it was styled was that the nobles were all requesting, begging really, if you like, that one among them should do them the honour of taking on a title that's been specially created for them. So it's a fawning, worshipful gathering that's come together to honour someone that's of great significance. Uh, his given name is Timogen. That's the name of the man. He's from a powerful family, but it's a tempestuous world in which he lives. So there's, you know, there's major infighting and, and internecine squabbling between the families. But his family, the family from which he has been born and within which he's been raised, is powerful in its own right. So there he stands, and the rest of the nobility, the Mongolian nobility, have come together to promise him their absolute obedience and obeisance. They lie down in front of him. They prostrate themselves in front of him to beg, please, please be our Genghis Khan. Right? This is a title that hasn't existed. The Khans are the leaders of the Mongol tribes. You know, the, the, there's a, a cat like a king, but Genghis has been has been added, and it means it's, it's quite difficult. It, in simplest terms, it probably means the hardest ruler, the toughest ruler, but in a more poetic interpretation or definition it means the blacksmith who creates the toughest steel the Genghis Khan so it, it implies everything about hardness, strength, indefatigability rigid, unbending it, all of that is there in Genghis Khan So he'd brought them together for Well, it, it was still yes, it was, it, was a, it was an ongoing process, but yes, he, he had spent a decade bringing the, the clans together because once again it's like, like like in the Highlands of Scotland you know you've got the various families the various clans and, 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 and which is true in all sorts of cultures around the world it's in Somalia all, all these places that where the, it's a family structure and powerful families exert power in their hinterland and then they, they bump up, up against you know neighbouring families and you know they, they jockey for position and what Temujin has been doing in the background, in the run-up to all of this, is he's been he's been taking control of the situation. He's been he's been forcing them together. He did it in a very clever way. The clan structure, well, all clan structures are based on people being loyal to their bloodlines, loyal to kin, and acknowledging the power of the connections made of blood. But what what Genghis Khan did was that he he mixed them up. He he forced people to move. Th th and I'm talking tens of thousands of people and he forced them to move from their like, clan homelands to other places 
and, and he, so he, he mixed them up rather than them remaining isolated as the standalone families he forced them together in such a way that eventually he, he was creating a situation in which everyone's only loyalty was to him and his family so rather than multiple families with multiple loyalties he forced a situation where there was one family his and everyone was loyal everyone was loyal to him so that was that was the basis of it and so you know eventually there he is he's, he's Genghis Khan uh, someone with control the like of which has never been seen in that part of the world so that's 1206 that he's honored in that way and he's dead by 1227 right so he's only got 20 years from the time of his acceptance as Genghis Khan until his death and within that time as i say he pulled together an empire four times bigger than that of Alexander the Great and twice as big as anything that was ruled over by any of the Roman Caesars. And that's the largest land empire that's ever been created, isn't it? It, it, it is. It's the, there's, there, was nothing, there was nothing quite like it. There was nothing to, nothing to rival it. Well, the British Empire. We've always got to defer to the British Empire, which painted a quarter of the globe pink. But in that world of Roman empires and Byzantine empires and Austro-Hungarian empires and all of the rest of it, you know, the, the empire of Genghis Khan was something to behold. And it was just done by him. It's an act of will. He wanted it and he made it happen. All of it was made possible as well by the, by the quality of his army because it was, it was achieved by force. Uh, highly disciplined warriors on horseback, highly mobile, armed with the bow and arrows and led by generals of genius. You know, everyone thinks of people like Napoleon Bonaparte or Wellington as being the, the paramount generals, but the men that were fighting on behalf of Genghis Khan were of undoubted skill and ability. They used cavalry in the main, but they were able to besiege. So where there was a fortified town, they had developed siege warfare to the point where they could get they could they could encircle a place and they could and they could deploy tactics and weaponry that they could get in amongst a, a sealed off settlement but really really it, the truth of it was that once he got up and running it was his reputation that went before him it was fear of slaughter basically because it it rapidly became apparent that if he appeared on your horizon if you just submitted to him there and then, give him what he wanted, he would just maybe impose a ruler and let the people get on with it. That's broadly what he did. If anybody opposed them, he was liable to kill everyone. He was liable to kill every man, woman and child, just to make the point. And having made that point often enough, it was seldom necessary for him to do it anymore. The word of his arrival would just go ahead of him and people knew that Genghis Khan was coming and they just right, just give him what he wants because other than that, we'll all end up dead. In about 1218, he turned his attentions into the west, towards the west, so he went into Transoxiana. Well, it's the west from his point of view. It depends, it depends on your perspective, isn't it? It depends where you're sitting on the ball that is the planet, what's your east and what's your west. But for him, he turned towards the west, which took him into Transoxiana, which is an old-fashioned name for places like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, the stands would be Transoxiana and he, he got into them via the Silk Roads which ran across the country and he was defied on arrival in places like Persia and he made pyramids of skulls wholesale slaughter 
and mounded up, cut off their heads and piled them up into great pyramids. He pushed 5,000 miles into Russian territory. 5,000 miles! Just extraordinary. There was great sophistication around the way he was thinking. He, he obviously, because his empire was on a colossal scale, he depended upon, he was utterly dependent upon information, moving the length and the breadth of it. And so he set up post houses along the tracks and the roads and the routes, places where horses were available, fresh horses, and a person coming in on horseback with a message could, could get a fresh horse and keep moving. And in that way, it was able to relay messages across the empire at the rate of 200 miles per day. That's pretty impressive in the 13th century. So he was able to keep information moving back and forth so that he knew what was going on. He's an extraordinary figure, and he's been mythologised for that reason. There was a document, a text, written during his lifetime and completed not long after he died, and it's called The Secret History of the Mongols, suitably enough. It's in there that we get the details of his death. He was all about absolute oppression of enemies. You know, he said, his quote was, a man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherished them, to take their horses between his knees and to press in his arms the most desirable of his women. Right, that was his attitude. Uh, And so... According to the, the secret history of the Mongols, what happened to him in the end was he had taken, he had claimed yet another daughter of yet another king and he was going to have her as a concubine and whatever happened, it's described that, you know, the first time that he went to be with her and they lay down together, she produced a knife that she had hidden somewhere in the folds of her clothing and she castrated him. Uh, she cut it off and his people came running they heard the the sounds of struggle and for whatever reason what he did was he said to take the girl away so the girl was taken away and he said let me sleep and he lay down to sleep uh, not having given away exactly what had happened and and so he bled to death and died and his grave site is well is, is is unknown and in the mythology of the people, he sleeps like Arthur, like King Arthur, uh, another hero ready to come back when, when his people need him. But he was, you know, uh, an, an anachronistic figure. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine a figure thinking and behaving in the way that he did. His abuse of women... I mean, he's obviously he's abuse and slaughter of all of humanity, but he was he was a prodigious rapist, let's say. Uh, and there was research done in 2003 where DNA was collected from 2,000 Eurasian men. And the published research found that in all likelihood that he had 16 million male descendants, such that one in every 200 men alive today are descended from Genghis Khan. So prolifically did he sow his seed. So he was quite something. He was a a unique, terrifying figure. He was succeeded to the throne, if you like, by his third legitimate son, Ogadai. And Ogadai took the whole thing even further. He completed the conquest of northern China. And then he headed even further west into Europe. Albania, Austria, Croatia, Hungary, Poland. All 
had to deal with the Mongol horde. At a battle in 1241, he took on a combined force of, of tens of thousands, Poles and Moravians, and led up by and given backbone by the Knights of the Teutonic Order. Now, this was a fighting unit like the SAS, if you like, that had affected the outcome of battles for a century. Well, Ogadai's Mongols beat the living daylights out of a lot of them. And in the aftermath, they, they filled nine sacks with the right ears of the fallen. So they went around the battlefield in the aftermath of their victory, removing the right ears from every corpse so that they could get an accurate tally of how many they had killed. Nine sacks of ears were collected. In the end up, one way and another, during the time of Genghis Khan and his successors, China, India, uh, the Near East and Europe all felt the Mongol fist. Nine million square miles of territory were controlled by them. There was effectively, you'll have heard of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which, which meant that within the Roman Empire, people, especially Roman citizens, could travel unmolested throughout it because the fear of the consequences were so great that you know, people were, were left untouched. Well, something similar happened with the Pax Mongolica, as it, which never existed, but historians have, have implied that there was effectively a Pax Mongolica, which meant that there was safe trade or they facilitated safe trade from Europe to China because what the Mongols said, that was what happened. It was fast moving though, and by the time of um, Marco Polo was the, a Venetian merchant and he found his way to the court of Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan was the grandson of Genghis Khan. And by this time, China had been settled by and dominated by the Khans of, of Mongolia. But a transformation had taken place by that point. Kublai Khan, although he was descended from the great mobile, peripatetic Mongol horde, he was a settled figure. He liked his, his home comforts and his luxury. So the change, the change had come. The Mongol horde had become a different entity. Uh, and Kublai Khan was really the last individual with the, with the strength of will to hold the whole thing together. Like all of the Khans, like Genghis Khan and all of his descendants, and into the the time of the, those Chinese emperors, they worshipped Tengri, the sky god, the god of the sky, who controlled everything. And because the Khans considered themselves to be his, or to be the emissaries of the sky god, they were in charge of all humanity, even the people they hadn't met yet. Do you remember when we had that foot and mouth outbreak, there was that great slaughter of the herds? And the Maasai people got in touch with the British government and said, you shouldn't have done that because all cattle belong to us. Even cattle we don't see. So you should have got our permission before you conducted that slaughter. Well, the Mongol Khans believed that they ruled the world, even people that they hadn't touched. So it, it, what, how that manifested itself was whenever visitors came to them from the outside world, they didn't see them or treat them as visitors. They treated them as subjects bringing tribute. The whole mindset was that, ah, I, I rule you too, and here you are. What have you brought me as a present? Was the mindset. Just extraordinary. No story of the world, no love letter to the world would be complete without mention of Genghis Khan. Such was the impact, such was the shadow that he cast over a whole portion of the globe with his outstretched hand. You know, the mythologising of him is wonderful, really. 
it is poetic. His mother was Holun, who was married, first of all, to another man, not Temujin's father. She was the wife of Childadu, and at one point they're together in their house and they realise that a rival clan is coming for her. She's coming to take her away. And Holun decides that she won't risk the death of her husband. And so she, you know, she, she pulls away from him and says, I'll go, because if you fight for me, they'll kill you. And I want you to survive, so I will go with them. And she says, find another wife and replace me with her. And as a final act, she takes off her top, her blouse or whatever, and she says, and she throws it to him, and she says, keep this with you so that you can hold it up to your face and have my fragrance wherever you are. And then she's gone. And Holun becomes the, the bride of Yesugai, who is the father of Temujin. So his mother was, first of all, taken away from another man and given to Yesugai, and that's the parentage of Temujin. And in that way of what she was trying to suggest to her husband from whom she was about to be parted, the time of the Mongol horde was limited in the story of the world. Their time upon this earth as a dominant force was limited, but like Holland's perfume, their fragrance lingers and it stuck and adheres to everything it touched. perilous voyage into the unknown, one of the world's last great journeys of discovery, a legendary explorer, watching birds, reading their flight and drawing the right conclusions, sailing into the vastness of the Pacific Ocean, eventually encountering Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud, and completing the human settlement of the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.